Good morning, Sailorville. Good to see you. If you got a Bible with you, you can find 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we begin a brand new series, Issues and Inspiration. How the inspired Word of God deals with the topics, the issues of our day. And as we do this, uh, I was thinking about the great Christian theologian and philosopher, uh, Francis Schaeffer, who... Uh, I heard him on a cassette tape back in 1984, I think, just, just a little while before he died, a couple of years before he died. He was preaching in, in Minneapolis uh, because he was spending a lot of time at the Mayo Clinic. He said these words. It was like the voice of a prophet. He said, if, if we have no way to judge society, he, he said, by way of an absolute, then society becomes the absolute. Powerful words, thoughtful words. Our society doesn't care much for biblical absolutes. It's relegated the church to the buildings we meet in. You do your little thing, we'll deal with the, we'll deal with the important things, right? Despite the fact that almost anything, any benevolent blessing that this country or world has experienced for the past two millennia has come on the wings of the church. Our Western culture has paraded its standards for life and society before us, and stated very clearly, unequivocally, it doesn't need or want God and his church. You're a dinosaur. Now, admittedly, science has presented us with a number of challenges that we have not uh, faced in previous generations, but there are two things that have never changed. Two things that have never changed. First, God, amen? Amen. God has never changed. Malachi put it best. I am the Lord. I do not say it. I don't mutate. I don't change. He is the immutable God, and aren't you glad? It was the president of the Southern Baptist denomination, J.D. Greer, who said, most Christians have not rejected God, but they have reduced him. And that's a true statement. The other thing that hasn't changed is the word of God. God's word hasn't changed. I love how the psalmist puts it. Forever, O Lord, your word is is fixed, firmly fixed uh, in the heavens. It was uh, was soon after I was converted, I had a very traumatic experience with my Bible, the one I'm holding in my hand. This is the very first whole Bible I ever owned, the new Schofield edition, red letter edition to the Bible because red letters were a big deal. And uh, I can still remember the day that I uh, uh, was going to church, took my, took my Bible, buckled my, my one-year-old in, and threw, had thrown my Bible on top of my 1980 Mazda RX-7, and uh, took off down the road, got to church, couldn't find my Bible, realized I'd thrown it on top of my car. So I had to retrace my steps. It, it hung in there for four miles, just a mile south of the church. It had fallen off. It was laying right in the middle of the road, Face open, like some of you have been sitting there reading it. At Matthew chapter 6, I can, I can still make my way there because there are perfect tire prints right over the top of it. A lot of tread on this Bible. But I got it back. My new skull-filled reference Bible, red letter edition. I mention that because the subtle... <laughs> The subtle indication, so to speak, uh, is that uh, perhaps the red letters 
The words of Jesus carry more weight. They carry more authority, uh, authority than, let's say, the Apostle Paul's or, or the Old Testament, perhaps. But we know better, amen? But by the way, there is a group out there called Red Letter Christians. Did you know that? They really, they're out there. Uh, Tony Campolo is the one leading it. He's gone downhill in his theology over the years. But in summary, they're kind of a, they're a, they're, they're a group that wants to espouse the gospel, believe the gospel, but, uh, but be liberal in the theology, sort of hold up the red letters, the words of Jesus sort of above all other scripture, and maybe not pay so much attention to the things he said about morality. They're sort of reacting to heartless evangelicalism, and that does exist. So their buzzword would be tolerance. Basically, they want to make peace with the culture, even if some of the behaviors of culture are unbiblical. Their social issues that they espouse and value are government spending for the poor, tolerance of homosexuality, and silence, silent or even tacit support of uh, legal abortion. In his book, I'm reading Dan Strange, his book, Plugged In, uh, talks about the worldview called plausibility structure. Some of you have probably heard of that. Others, it's like, what? Plausibility structure. You don't need to remember that, but you do need to get this. He defines it at least partly in this way. Uh, Listen to this. Plausibility structure is, watch this, because this is you and me. It's a web of beliefs that are so embedded in the hearts and minds of most of a society that people hold them either unconsciously so, uh, or so firmly that they never think to ask whether or not they're true. Okay, which reminded me of, an, uh, of a, a statesman a couple hundred years ago who said, there is nothing so absurd that if repeated often enough will not be believed by the masses. Take evolution, for example. Most of society, most of you now have been educated in a completely secular system, God-less system. And you have accepted the premise, or at least at one time, those around you accepted the premise of the theory of evolution. Uh, You know, in other words, most today, as we encounter people with the gospel, most people today uh, no longer think seriously about a viable alternative, because viable, uh, 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 an all-powerful God by divine fiat creating everything instantaneously, that's ludicrous, that's, that's unicorns and fairy tales. I mean, seriously. The book that we love and we just upheld and did the little pledge to, for all of its glory, for all of its perfections and its power, has been marginalized, has been outdated, considered antiquated, old, tired, and mostly just for a few old ladies still going to church. But we know better, amen? We know better. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All scripture is inspired by God. And how does it come to us? It comes comes to us because the Spirit of God took those 40 men who were writing the Word of God over 1,500 years, and he carried them along by the Spirit of God to keep their Bible that would be complete and finished without excess and without error, and aren't you glad? I love a quote by, uh, by 
the former president of Dallas Seminary, now with the Lord, Lewis Berry Chafer. This is a, a bit of a mind twister, but it's, a, it's good, and it'll make you think. We'll keep it up there for you. He said, the Bible is not such a book a man would write if he could, or could write if he would. That's worth staring at. I'm, uh, I'm writing a book that's not an autobiography, but it's very autobiographical. Should be done by the time I'm 80. We don't, and, and, and I'm reminded of human nature as I write, as I write this book. Again, look, look at, keep that up there. Keep the quote up there. I want it up there for a while. The Bible's not such a book as a man would write if he could or could write if he would. Uh, we don't tend to expose our personal sins. We hide them. We don't condemn ourselves. We commend ourselves, don't we? We try to keep ourselves in the most positive light. But the Bible paints a darker portrait of man. In the book of Romans, as Paul is going through this litany of sins that men are guilty of, he throws this in there. He says, he says they're, they're inventors of evil. It's almost like he was thinking, well, they're going to keep coming up with sins. That's us. That's why, the, again, uh, Schaefer is right. The Bible is not such a book a man would write if he could. You wouldn't write that about yourself or could write if you would. That is, I mean, I talked to somebody just the other day. They said, well, you know, I mean, I got a brother who thinks, how do we know just a couple of guys didn't get together and just kind of write this thing, you know? To sort of, you know, buffoon all of us. All right, listen, we're talking about one book with 66 books within it that has 40 different writers. And they're not all the same. They lived in different places. We're talking kings and fishermen and statesmen and politicians, a tax collector, a doctor, a herdsman, a country bumpkin by the name of Amos, all of them seamlessly coming together in what the reformers called the Analogia Scriptura, the Bible always coming together. Over 1,500 years without contradiction. I talked to somebody just the other day, newer Christian, who said, you know, I'm really wrestling with all the, you know, the contradictions in the Bible. I said, really, could you name one for me? He couldn't, because there aren't any. You have 300 plus prophecies, clear prophecies of the, of the Lord Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection in the Old Testament. All of them, watch it, fulfilled. Why, does that, why is that so important? Why do we want to stay connected to that? Because when Jesus said in John 14, uh, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me too. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there, I'm going to come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you, you may be as well. And when we read later on in 1 John, when he says, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and that's what we are. It's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Why do statements like that Promises yet to come thrill us to the bone because of all the promises already fulfilled. Amen? 
Even in the famous rapture passage where Paul says, you know, the Lord himself will ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds. Paul knows that he's writing to a brand new infant church in Thessalonica, and they're going to wonder, what is this? This is weird. This is just so mysterical, so out of this world. So before he says those words, he predicates them with this phrase, this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, by a word from the Lord. In other words, I have to invoke the authority of God's word here. I heard the great Southern Baptist Adrian Rogers preach one of his last messages before he died. He already had cancer and he preached down in, in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, he said these words as he, I think he knew his time was short. And he, this is back in the early 2000s. He said, the day is coming when the main issue among Christians will not be the authority of the Bible, but the sufficiency of the Bible. That is, is it enough? And that was the voice of a prophet. To unbelievers out there, the question is the necessity of the Bible. Do we even need it? Uh, to liberals, theological liberals out there, the question is the authority of the Bible. Is it, I, mean, it's, I mean, is it really from God? But the question among evangelicals today is, is the sufficiency of the Bible. Is it enough? Will it deal with the issues of our day? Can the Bible take our questions, have answers for us, when it comes to social justice. Wall, no wall. Racism. Gender dysphoria. Right here in our own house, we have those who are struggling with who they are, sexually speaking. Modern day parenting. Being bullied and shamed. Does the Bible address these things? How about suicide? Just last week, a 16-year-old in Malaysia put it out on social media. I'm thinking about taking my life. What do you think? 64% of the respondents said, go for it. She did. Remember when our son came home from seventh grade in the local school, the elementary school around here, crying. Why? Why? What's wrong? Because the little girl next to him sitting in the desk right next to him, he got to know her as a friend, had committed suicide the night before. How about mental disorders? Does the Bible address that? Is it, is it ever okay to take medicine? Is it wrong always to take medicine? I mean, if, if you think it is, then you, you have an issue with the Apostle Paul. He apparently didn't think so. We're talking about sufficient for faith and practice. I had two more grandkids this last week. I had to shove that in there somewhere. One of, the, one, of the, one of our gals, uh, you know, she suffered long, long labor, arduous labor, painful labor, and finally, finally she asked for an epidural. Her husband didn't quote Philippians 4.19 to her at that. You know, my God, you're, you, can, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, honey. Bang! <laughs> she got the epidural. What about Money and lifestyle, and materialism, and politics. What about women 
What about the Me Too movement? What does the Bible say about these? Does the Bible address these issues? Can it hold up? And how does, oh, by the way, how does a Christian stand out in this world? See, while evangelicals have historically cried out, sola scriptura, that means the Bible alone. The Bible alone. We trust the Bible alone. Amen? The world cries out, sola cultura. We're putting our finger to the wind of the culture, its customs, its achievements, its outlook. And by the way, don't don't get smug. Every single one of us here have succumbed to the culture in some way, shape, or form. And you're thinking, and many of you in your own practices, and your family, and in your marriage. So we're all guilty of some level of conformity. Gary Gilley writes this, once we allow sola cultura to dominate sola scriptura, we are on a slippery slope with no guardrails to keep us within biblical boundaries. So how does a Christian stand out without looking and acting and sounding out of step, out of our minds, or just as outright fools? Well, Paul does tell us in the Philippians, he says, I want you to be blameless and innocent children of God. Watch this. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in this world. If you underline your Bible, you should underline those two prepositional phrases. Because that, those phrases alone tell us that God never intended us to run from culture. He never intended us to, sec- to seclude ourselves, to become monk-like when it comes to culture. He wants us to be lights in the culture. Not, not to be conformers, but transformers by being transformed ourselves. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And some of you have never been transformed from the inside. God never tells us to superimpose our Christianity and Christianize the culture. That doesn't make any sense. No, he says, you be lights in the culture, and you'll transform it that way. Now, let's be real. The culture we live in is rudderless. It's secular. That means it's godless. It rejects the idea of an absolute standard and unchanging truth. Ironically, those who cry the loudest against the Bible also espouse the idea that truth is relative, truth is flexible, truth is changing, you know, depending on the current wind of culture, which means whatever they're standing for and yelling for today, they'll yell against tomorrow or sometime down the line. But just as ironic are believers, you and me, who hold the word of God high but allow the culture and its standards and its beliefs and its practices, especially, especially in the area of sexual behavior in, the, in its various ungodly forms, to, to dominate our lives and still praise Jesus. Our theme for Vacation Bible School is in the wild. That's a fitting, that's a fitting theme for this series because it's a wild world out there. So as we delve into the issues of our day, which are many, 
Let's first remember, let's reclaim, let's resolve, and let's remain on this foundation, the inspired word of God, authoritative and sufficient for all things. Now our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what it says. Paul, by the way, is in a Roman mamertine prison when he writes this. He's facing his own death. He's, he, this is his last will and testament. And he's talking to Timothy. He says, but as you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Was it from you, Paul? No. And how from, some of your Bibles say infancy, and that would be a good translation. So he's referring to his mother and his grandmother. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then the more more popular verses. All scripture, and the scripture referred to, harkens back to the verse before the sacred writings, okay, that he said. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the Apostle Paul uses, when he says all Scripture is inspired by God, that's inspired by God is just one word in the original. It's a really cool word, never found outside of the Bible, found only here in the Bible. Paul virtually invents the word. Theophnustos. God breathed. God breathed out. The idea is the Bible is the product of God. That's the idea here. Pretty cool word, by the way. The Bible, the very word of God teaches us. This is where we want to go today. Now, it's going to teach us what's right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right, how to do right, and to finish right. You want to get this right? Here we go. The Bible teaches us what is right. It's profitable for teaching. See it there? That's, that's our theology. That's what we believe and how we practice it. I, I, I know this is going to be hard for you to accept this, but we don't get our theology from Piper or Grudem or J.I. Packer. We get it from God and his word. Amen? So it teaches us what is right, what is orthodox, right thinking. Okay? We get it from Scripture. It teaches us what's not right. Reproof. Now, this is a powerful word. The word reproof, the root word, listen to this, the root word means to expose. And it literally pictures somebody getting caught. Like David, you know, or when Nathan stood before David, who had sinned and murdered and committed adultery, he said, you're the man caught. When you're reading the scripture, it will catch you. It will expose you. It will reprove you and stop your, your wrong thinking. It confronts you on this. And we need that, do we not? We need to get knocked down once in a while, do we not? Aren't you glad it doesn't just stay there? The Bible doesn't just knock us flat. But it's, it's useful for, for teaching, for reproof, and then how to get right. That's correction. If you're walking through the house, you knock over a vase, you pick it up, you straighten it back out, right? That's exactly what the word means here. It's the only time it ever appears in the Bible is right here. It means to set up straight again. 
So it's the idea of having bad thinking made right. I've never come across a better illustration than, and he doesn't know I'm pointing him out. He's sitting right up here towards front. His name's Rich. He was a brand new Christian about three years ago. He was in our cell group, brand new Christian. And he walked into the cell group and there was a buzz going and there were some seasoned Christians there. And one of them just made an off the cuff, a pejorative comment about the pro-choice movement and people committing you know, abortion. Look what they're doing and blah, blah, blah. And Rich over here goes, what do all of you have against the rights of a woman to make her own choice? You could have heard a pin drop in the room. And I was loving this. So I said, that's a good question, Rich. What do you think about this? And suddenly everybody, even the person who had made the, the comment unthoughtfully at the time, not considering we had new Christians, suddenly it was all hands on deck. It was like, well, let's, uh, let's see what the scripture has to say. We went to Psalm 139, carefully went through there. I'll never forget at the end of that night, Rich going, I've never seen that before. I didn't know that. Today he's an advocate for life, amen? Because the Bible doesn't just tell you what's right and then flatten you by telling you what's wrong or what's not right. It tells you how to get right. It corrects you, and aren't you glad? And also how to stay right while you're at it. How to stay right. And that involves training in righteousness. This is the whole discipleship mantra. By the way, the word training means to train or teach a child. That's a great word. It means to teach a child. Why would, it, why would Paul use that kind of word? And I think the reason is because our children are the most pliable. Our children learn quickest. They memorize best. They can memorize anything, can't they? And that's just, I told you a week ago, one of these new Christians, men that I've been working with said to me, he said to me while we were working together, he said, go, go, go ahead and treat me like a child. I want to learn. I said, that's a great posture to continually be in. And that's the word here used for training. So what's right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right, and how to do right. Because at the end of the day, we need, to, we need some action here. And this is, we got we to get into the game, do we not? And that's the expression, equipped for every good work. By the way, if you're rocking an old King James, you get points today. Your Bible says fully equipped, and that's exactly what the word means. By the way, if I'm fully equipped, do I need any more equipment? It's a rhetorical question, Right? It is sufficient. Some of us are like David putting on Saul's armor. When the, when the slingshot will do. We don't need all, we don't need Saul's armor when the slingshot will do. This will do. The word of God is sufficient. That's the idea here. And finally, how to finish right. Just before the word equipped is the word, I think some of your Bibles say competent. It means to be complete. It's the only time it ever appears in the Bible right here. Now this word literally means, watch this, it literally means ready, prepared. The idea is ready because I'm prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared to face the culture, face the issues, face the problems, face those mind-boggling things that some of you are dealing with. Some of you are dealing with them in your home. You're dealing with them in, in your workplace. You're dealing with them on TV. You're dealing with them in your living room. And the Bible teaches us how to finish right on the issues of life and death. And for all that the culture is selling us, and, it's, and we're buying, make no mistake, we're buying. It hasn't prepared us to die, has it? And it can't. It can't prepare us to die. 
But God's word can, God's word does. Amen? It does. God's word teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to die. And I'm, I'm reminded, Jared Leonard, who's going to join me up here in a little bit, has a, had a brother that uh, had cancer, or actually had a tumor that nearly killed him several years ago, and they actually thought he was going to die. And his dad, who doesn't mince any words, said to his son, Son, if you're going to die, die like a Christian. <laughs> he was 14 at the time. And he didn't die. But his dad was trying to say something to him. You're a Christian. You can face death. Because Jesus Christ has already prepared you for it. You can finish well. Amen? And some of you are not prepared to die. You're still in your sins. The culture has got in because it was already in to begin with. You were born in sin. All of your inclinations are towards sin. And you're religious, but you're lost. And you've never placed your faith in Jesus. If you want to be able to finish right, then you need to believe in the one who finished well and said it is finished when he died. You need to, if you want to be prepared to die, then you need to receive the one who died for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins. And that's all recorded right here in the book of books. If you've never trusted him, trust him today. And if you have, here's my profound word for you today. Love your Bible. Love your Bible. The psalmist put it best. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. And Solomon put it like this. He said, of the making of many books, there is no end. And the much devotion to them is weariness to the flesh. Have you ever read that? What's the end of the matter? Fear God, keep his commandments. Two things will never change. God and his word. Do you love it? Do you love him? This is how he communicates to us primarily. Amen? So we should love this. Do you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its sufficiency, its authority, its inspiration, its truth. And Lord, as we'll see, it does deal with all the issues of life. It is sufficient. God, I just thank you for your word. I'm asking you to make the Christians in this room lovers of you by being lovers of the way in which you have communicated to us, and that is through your word, to love your word above all other words in this world, to love yours, and thus love you more and more and more. I do pray for those who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they might come to know the word incarnate, the, word, the one who became your communication in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, and believe on him as depicted, as pictured here at the Lord's table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.